So what's a trend that you hate? There's always trends going around. What's a trend that you just look at or you hear and you think, that is a horrible trend right now? How about a trend that you once fully, fully took on and now you look back and you think, what on earth was I thinking? In elementary school, I had a mullet. And it was, it was a rockin' mullet, which I hear is kind of cool now. One day you will look back and think, what was I thinking? <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you, David definitely doesn't, won't look back and think, what was I thinking? Because his mullet was cool. My mullet wasn't as cool as David's was. <laughs> My mullet was horrible looking. Uh, it was like the epitome of bad mullets. And I look back and I think, what on earth was I thinking? But we see trends everywhere. And sometimes trends, you know, they feel kind of good. They look good. And in the moment, at least. But almost always, a trend, after it's gone, we look back at and we think, that was so wrong. That's why it was a trend. That's why it didn't have staying power, right? So every time a trend circles back around, you know that it's not going to have staying power because it's just not that good. And yet we continue to see trends. We see trends in fashion. We see trends in academics. We see trends in science. We see trends in philosophy, in politics. Everywhere we look, wherever humans touch, we see trends. And those trends don't have staying power. And yet, no matter how bad we think mullets might look, they make a comeback, don't they? And they draw in a whole new generation. I think this reveals something about human nature. And this something is that humans are easily swayed. We are easily pushed and pulled by different changing winds. I would even say human nature, uh, we are kind of like trampolines in Dony Park during the springtime. How many of you have seen your neighbor's trampoline flying past your yard? Last night was fairly windy. I thought our trampoline might take off. I think that's the way human nature is. We see these trends. We see the, the evidence. The trends are the evidence that we are so easily manipulated and pulled and pushed to and fro by changing winds of doctrine. And yet, we can be anchored. We can be secure. We don't have to follow every new trend. And that's what we're going to study today as we look at Ephesians 4, 7-16 through 16, as we continue our study in Better Together, a study through Ephesians. We're up to 4, 7, and if you remember, the first three chapters were chapters on theology. Last week we got into 4.1 and we saw therefore and he has changed pace. He went from talking about theology to application. And we talked about how important this is because we truly live out our theology. If you want to know your true theology, look at your actions. Your actions reveal your true theology. You will live out that true theology. So we may claim all we want that God is sovereign, that we trust God, and yet 
oftentimes our actions reveal something else. So every time we're angry about something and we yell at our kids, that's revealing a theology. Now the solution isn't to just give up on life. I have bad theology, I'll never get good theology, I might as well just go walk away from it all. The solution is to go back and remind ourselves of good theology. And as we replace bad theology with good theology, it changes our behavior. So often what we want to do is we want to jump to chapters 4 through 6, and we want to say, how should that I live? And so we start applying all of this application point without the theology to match, and then it just changes our behavior. And then when we lash out in anger again, we feel like failures. But the solution isn't just to try harder. The solution is to go back to the theology that's driving it all. Now, I do want to just address something I talked about a little bit last week because we're on this uh, theology drives behavior. Something that is really important to uh, recognize is that sometimes there are some other things that might drive a thought or a behavior. So, when I use the example of anxiety, when I feel anxiety, it's because I have bad theology. That's me. I know it. I know my anxiety is rooted in bad theology, and what I need to do is go and replace that bad theology with good theology. But I also know that sometimes anxiety can be rooted in, and depression can be rooted in, hormonal changes. Sometimes hormones just wreak havoc on our lives. Sometimes it can be rooted in chemical imbalances in the brain. And those chemical imbalances can wreak havoc on our lives. So it's not always that the root cause is a bad theology, but what do we do with that hormonal imbalance? What do we do with that chemical imbalance? And I think the solution is actually the same. We go back and we root ourselves in good theology. Because sometimes that hormonal or chemical imbalance will try to sell you a lie. And then all of a sudden you think that maybe God's not in control. And you start to feel all of these anxious thoughts. So what do you do? I think the solution is the same. Either way, you go back to good theology. It's reminding yourself over and over again who God is and who you are because of who God is. That will help with the anxiety and that will help with depression no matter what the cause is. But it is important because I don't want to mislead you and make you think, you know, you might be having a hormonal issue. You might be having a chemical issue. And then you're thinking like, wait, I have bad theology. I better go find my bad theology. And now you're doing this wild goose chase. So it is important to examine what is the root of this anxiety? What is the root of this depression? For me, it's bad theology. And I've got to go back and replace it with good theology. No matter what, the solution will always be to come back to good theology. That's why Paul spends the first three chapters on theology. So I don't want us to just skip, now that we've finally made it to application, let's just skip that theology. So I want us to continually, as we walk through this series, to continually go back, and we won't examine all of the theology, but I want us to look at some of the theology. So in chapter 1, we see some big points. One is that you are chosen 
in Christ. That if you have called Christ your Savior, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you are chosen. You are part of the elect. That's something that's really important. Number two is that you are a child of God. You have an inheritance in Him. No matter how bad things get on this earth, there is something greater waiting for you. Verse 13, I think, is so important. Verse one, or chapter 1, verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you have been sealed by the Spirit who is the guarantee of your salvation. That no matter how bad you mess up, you are still sealed. No matter how bad, and some of you here have messed up pretty horribly, and you think there's no way If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you have been sealed by the Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance. Another important one is that He is uniting all things together in Him, in Christ. Everything will be united. He is in the process of undoing all the brokenness that sin has created. Chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but He has made us alive together in Him. That we were dead without ability, we could not please God, we couldn't earn our righteousness, but by grace, He has made us alive together with Him, and He has called us holy. He calls us saints. He calls us righteous. And He goes on that this is His grace, not a result of works, so that no one will, will, may boast. For we are His workmanship. That word workmanship means original artwork. You are an original piece by God. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty awesome. And then he goes on and he reminds us of the division that was in this world. That we loved to divide ourselves by race, by ethnicity, by anything you could imagine. We love to divide ourselves. In particular here, he's addressing the Jews and the Gentiles. That by nature, Jews and Gentiles were at enemies with each other. They were at war with each other. But they have been united together in Christ. And he talks about in chapter 2 that we are united, that there is no division in the body of Christ. That there is no one that is a higher up and lower. There is no hierarchy here. Chapter 3, he continues with this mystery. He calls this a mystery that God is uniting all things together, including people. And he ends chapter 3 with a prayer. And this prayer for them is actually kind of steps to how to continue to mature. So he's laid out all of this theology of who you are because of Christ that Christ has put you positionally as holy and righteous and blameless, that Christ has positionally made you His son or daughter. And then He tells us how we can grow in that maturity by studying the Word, by submitting the Word, by letting Christ dwell in our heart. Not just take up temporary residency, but saying, Christ, You own my heart. If you want to knock down walls, knock them down. If you want to put up new paint, put up new paint. You want to redesign the whole thing? Go for it, Christ, because it's yours. And it is through that process that we become mature in Christ. So that's where he gets to chapter 4 where he transitions to the application. 
And that's where we're going to pick up, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who ascended, or sorry, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, so this starts off with a but that is a contrasting uh, conjunction. And so he's contrasting a couple ideas here. So last week in verses 1 through 6, we talked about unity in the body of Christ, how God has united us together and that he has done it. It is our responsibility to maintain the unity. And then he gives us very practical ways of doing it, right? So he gives us this list of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. That's all that we talked about last week was this idea of unity in the body of Christ. And then he gives us another list that shows us examples of unity. And then that contrasting conjunction shows us that there is diversity within this unity. But grace was given to each one of us. So I think he's right here, he's emphasizing that we are still individuals that are a part of this body. That there is unity here. So we need to talk a little bit about what unity means and what it is not. Oftentimes people think unity means uniformity. Uniformity is everyone looking the same. Everyone being the same. Everything exactly uniform. Everyone the same. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is everyone working in their own special giftedness with a oneness towards the same goal. The goal, the purpose of Calvary Bible Church, we exist that all people would come to know Christ and grow in Christ. That's our goal. That's our oneness. That's what we are all striving towards. Within that unity, we need diversity. Diversity of gifts, diversity of talents, even diversity of the way we think. So uniformity, everyone being the same, to give you an example of how that is actually damaging, we could think of a football team. Could you imagine if a football team decided Instead of unity, unity is all every player coming together, doing what they're best equipped to do, striving to score and win the game. That's unity. But could you imagine if a football team came together and said, you know what, we're a little confused about unity. Instead, we think that everybody needs to be the same. So instead of having a 
unity and a diversity of giftedness, we're all going to be offensive linemen. And so we don't want running backs. We don't want wide receivers. We don't want quarterbacks. We want offensive linemen. How many games do you think that team would win? Probably not many. What if the team said, you know what, linemen are just a bunch of fat, lazy guys. My college roommate was an offensive lineman. He was definitely not fat nor lazy, uh, but uh, they get that bad rap. So let's just say the quarterback says, they're all fat, they're all lazy, we don't want them. Instead, what we want is all quarterbacks, because let's face it, we're the most intelligent, we can throw, that team would probably do worse than the offensive lineman team. But you're starting to see the point, right? That uniformity actually goes against unity. Uniformity actually hurts an organization. It actually hurts the body of Christ. So it's not uniformity that we're striving after. We need a diversity of people coming together with one purpose of reaching the world for Christ, so that all would come to know and grow in Christ. But another one that people get it confused with is conformity. People think that unity is also conformity. Conformity is pressure to become uniform. Pressure to conform to the rest of the group. It's outside pressure that is put on you to conform. That's also not unity. I think we see this the most in high schools. High schools, if you've ever, I know we've got a lot of homeschool people, but I was in high school, I went to high school, and I'll tell you, it is the place you will feel the most pressure to conform, and it is really difficult. And for those of you who are still in high school right now, I want to encourage you that it's not always going to be that way. You can stay strong and outlast that pressure. But it is a tremendous amount of pressure. It is difficult to stay strong because that social pressure to conform is really high. And sometimes it feels like the stakes are really high. But that's not unity. It's not outside pressure forcing you to become something that you might not even be. Unity is coming together in a oneness to achieve a goal. And so when we talk about unity, that's what we talk about. Not conformity, not pushing, putting pressure on everybody so that they can become what we think they need to be. And it's not uniformity, all of us looking and acting and talking and thinking and having the exact same theology. That's not unity. Unity is coming together, and I even liked how Christian put it in his Sunday school today. He talked a little bit about some differences in the theology of communion and how there was church splits. And it's sad, and Christian was like, this is actually going against communion because this theology wasn't so great that they had to split over it. But what they desired was uniformity, this perfect theology that everybody could conform to instead of unity, saying, you know what, we can disagree on this small matter, 
and but we can still come together in a oneness that Christ has created in us to continue to grow and mature as the body. So that's that's the unity, and then we see that diversity. And so, but grace was given to each one of us. So there's a diversity. There's a, still an individuality. You are a masterpiece, a work, an original artwork of God. He doesn't want to like erase you and make you look like every other cookie cutter copper, cookie cutter copy of every other church out there, right? So that's what he's getting at. But grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Christ has given a gift to each one of us for the equipping and the maturing. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that gift is. But then he goes on, therefore it says, and he's going to quote Psalm 68, 18, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. There's a little bit of debate about what Psalm 68 is a reference to. I think it's a reference to God uh, and, and it is a celebration actually of God taking the Israelites out of uh, Egypt. So that's the Exodus. He's going to bring them. Uh, he led a host of captives. That's the captives, the Israelites coming out of the, uh, Egypt. And he gave gifts to men. And so he ascends on high. I think that's all the way to Jerusalem. So some people think it's Moses. It stops at Mount Sinai. I don't think that correlates quite as well. It's God bringing Israel out of, out of Egypt, taking them all to Jerusalem, and then he ascends on high. Jerusalem's up in the mountains. He ascends on high, and then he gives gifts to men. So it's kind of like, and he gives the spoils to Israel. So that's what he does. But then verses 9 and 10 are kind of uh, Paul's exegesis of this and how it applies to New Testament theology. So in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? So we need to talk about this a little bit because some of your translations will say, what does it mean but that he descended into the lower regions of the earth, of and the make a big difference. So there's three different like main ideas behind this or uh, tr- interpretations of this. The first one is that it really is of the earth, the, into the lower regions of the earth. And the idea here is that Christ descended in his death to either hell or to like a holding place and he preached the gospel to those who were in either hell or in that holding place. This was a very popular idea or theology all the way up until about John Calvin. Calvin didn't like this idea, and so he suggested a different solution, and that different solution is that this would be a a different type of genitive, and so it would be into the lower regions, the earth. And so right here it is describing for, for Calvin, and actually that gained a lot of traction and has been kind of the popular idea, all the way up until now. Uh, and so it's the earth is describing what the lower region is. So you've got it's of the earth, so he descended into hell, or he had de- descended from his throne to the earth. Another pop- popular solution is that uh, it's still into the lower regions of the earth, but uh, the original audience would have seen that as meaning the grave, as a reference to the grave. And so that interpretation would say not that he descended all the way into hell, but that he had descended into the grave, thereby conquering death. And so those are your three interpretations. I'll be honest with you. I will, Depending on who I read that day, I might fall into one of those three. So you can see it's not that important of a theology, but there are churches that divide over this. There are churches that will say, we are definitely a more holy church because we believe that it is that he descended into the lower regions 
of the earth. And there are other churches that will say, we are more holy because we believe that he descended to the earth. And that's kind of stupid that Christ would ever go to hell. You idiot. And it's actually doing that very opposite of what Ephesians 4 is calling us to. This is not a primary theology issue. And we can have a disagreement on this and still be in unity. Still be striving towards that same goal together. Now, however you take this, verse 10 is the point. Whether you take it that He descended into hell, whether you take it that He descended to earth, or whether that you take it that He descended into the grave, the point is, verse 10, that He who descended is the one who also ascended. So the whole point is, how can He ascend? Jesus was already ascended. He was already on His throne, right? So how can He ascend to His throne if He's already on the throne? Well, He's got to descend. Whether we, whether we agree on where He descended to isn't the point. The point is that He descended from His throne. He lived this life. He died in your place on the cross for your sin and your rebellion against God. And then He ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. That's the point. That He descended so that He can come back and ascend back to His throne. That He could undo all of the sin and brokenness that we have brought into this world. That He would fill all things. This idea of filling all things is that He is reversing the brokenness. That He is bringing Himself into all things. It actually traces all the way back to chapter 1 when He says that He will make all, He will unite all things under Him. It's this reversing of the brokenness of the world that Jesus is doing. That's the point. Let's not get hung up on where He descended to. The point is He ascended to His throne far above it all. And that He fills all things. And He gave gifts. Now, upon His ascension, then He also gives these gifts. He gave the, and the gifts are, so if we go back to verse 7, grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, what's the gift? I believe that the gift is here in verse 11. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So sometimes I think we over-spiritualize this and we look for what is my spiritual gift. Uh, I don't think we need to turn to Ephesians for that argument because the answer here is that He gave the gifts of the apostles. And then He goes on and He lists the, uh, these offices. So the, uh, an apostle is simply someone who is sent with authority. So within the church we see uh, a couple different uh apostles or use of the term apostle. Sometimes an apostle was just sent, someone sent with the authority of, of another church. So, you know, if we decided it, we're a part of what's called the IFCA, it's an association uh, or a fellowship. If we decided, you know, we, uh, Bob is one of our elders, we wanted him to represent our church at the IFCA, we could send him with the authority of our church. That'd be kind of like Bob being an apostle for Calvary Bible Church. So that's one way that the term is used. But there's also the office of an apostle. Now the office of an apostle was someone who was sent with the authority of Christ. And there's a couple of different rules that, that this, or a couple different uh, requirements to fulfill this office. One is you had to be trained by Christ himself. 
We don't need to go to any other because that's the main one. If you weren't trained by Christ himself, you could not fulfill the role of office of apostle. So we see that there are 12 plus 1 in the role of apostle. That plus 1 is Paul. Paul spent time, he went into the wilderness and was instructed by Christ on how he was to reach the Gentiles. So we see that there are 13 apostles that he is given as a gift. Not just the apostles, but also the prophets. A prophet is simply someone who is a mouthpiece for God, someone who speaks on God's behalf. This is a reference specifically to New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets. So these first two have to do with the building up of the Word of God. Not every New Testament book was written by an apostle. But in order to be actually canonized, it had to have the apostle's approval. That's pretty interesting, huh? So, the gospel according to Mark. Mark was not an apostle. The gospel according to Luke. Luke was not an apostle. However, their gospels were approved by the apostles. So I think the point with these first two is that this is how God was going to build up the New Testament. God was going to equip us, and if we look down uh, in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So why did he give these gifts? Well, it's to equip us to do the work of the ministry. So how does he do it through the apostles and the prophets? The first step, I, I believe, is by building up the New Testament. So he's going to use the apostles and the prophets to build up the New Testament to equip us for the work of the ministry. But that's not all. There's also the evangelist. Now, we often think of an evangelist as someone who's really talented at going out and sharing the gospel. That's not how the, it would be used in this list. This list, the evangelist would be someone who is very good at church planting. We would actually use the term church planter. So it's someone who's going to go, he's going to start the church, and he's going to plant it, he's going to help it mature, and then he's going to leave and he's going to go plant another church. So the first two are building the word. The second one is, or sorry, the third one is spreading the word. And then we've got pastors, or sorry, shepherds and teachers. Now, the way this is constructed in the Greek, everyone will, almost everyone will agree that these two go together. And part of the reason why I believe these two go together is because the shepherds or the pastors aren't just there to shepherd the flock, but this is specifically how they shepherd the flock. It's not that I can shepherd the flock just by any new like corporate trend. We see that often in churches in America, that churches want to follow some type of corporate trend, and this is how to grow your church fast. But that's actually not the assignment for shepherding the flock. It's not looking at corporate America and finding out how to run just like a corporation might. But the shepherd is to shepherd the flock through teaching the Word of God. That's why he's included shepherds and teachers. The primary function of a pastor, shepherd, is to teach the Word of God, to shepherd the flock through the teaching of the Word of God. So, we've got the apostles and prophets who build the Word of God. We've got the evangelist that spreads the Word of God. And then we've got the pastor-teacher that teaches the Word of God. All of it surrounds, or all of it stems from the Word of God. And what is it to do? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This word equip, 
originally meant to set a bone, or if it wasn't used in like a doctor setting, it was to, it meant to like align a room. So like prepare a room for something. So to equip, to, to make the body be prepared for the work of the ministry. Now what's interesting here is that it is the saints, the congregation, that does the work of the ministry. I, my job is not actually to do the work of the ministry. That's the congregation's job. My job is to shepherd the flock and equip you through the teaching of the word so that you would be equipped to do the work of the ministry. That's one of the reasons why I don't call myself a minister. I think this is really important for us to get. What it's saying here is that you have an assignment. God has given you an assignment, a role to play. You are an original creation that He created with a purpose and an intent to fulfill that purpose. And one day, you will stand before God and you will have to answer for whether or not you are obedient in your assignment. You aren't just a volunteer at a church. A volunteer implies that this is a temporary thing and that it's kind of optional, that the church doesn't really need you. You are a member of a congregation, a member of the body, and you are incredibly important to this body. He's going to continue to explain that. One day, I will have to stand in front of God, and I will have to answer for how I have equipped you to do the work of the ministry. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Each one of us, doing our assignment builds up the body. Each one of us doing our assignment makes this place better. When you neglect your assignment, not only are you being disobedient to God, but you are actually robbing this church. And your assignment may seem something as simple as filling up the communion cups. We had kids do that today. Kids have an assignment. If nine and eight-year-old kids play an important role in this church, so do you. For the building up of the body in Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And so we see what, why we are building this up, why He has given us all the assignments, and part of it is that we would attain the unity of faith so that we would maintain that unity that God has already created, so that we would fulfill the theologies of chapters 1 through 3 and the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge of the Son of God, it, it simply means an intimacy with Christ. And that goes back to the prayer of the last prayer in chapter 3, that we would uh, fulfill the prayer of chapter 3, that we would all 
become intimate and full of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we would become what Christ has created us to become individually and as a church. Now that's important for us to recognize that as a church, we will never become fully what God has called us to be if we don't participate. But individually, we will never become fully what God has called us to be if we are not participating in church. And then he gives us another reason why. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. And as we talked about in the introduction, it is easy for us, human nature, to be pulled and pushed by every changing wind. We are like trampolines in Dony Park during the springtime. We fly around. And we see that so easily, right? We see the trends constantly changing in science and politics. And in all honesty, sometimes there are trends that will last what seems like a long time. A trend that might last my lifetime is still a blip on the screen compared to eternity, isn't it? And yet, it may seem like such a solid idea because I live such a short life. It's really just a blip on the screen. And so we work together so that we would be rooted in Scripture and with one another. And it's so important that we gather together. Me reading the Bible on my own is not enough. And I'll tell you why. Because I have a tendency to twist Scripture to fit my own viewpoint. I have a tendency to twist Scripture to make it mean what I want it to mean. And so do you. And that's one of the reasons why it is so important that we gather together so that we would keep each other accountable, that we would help anchor one another in the Word, so that we wouldn't just be blown around by every wind of doctrine. There are oftentimes really intelligent theologians with really bad theology, but because they can speak so eloquently, we can be twisted really easily. We need each other to be rooted and grounded in Scripture. And then he gives us this rather, that is another contrasting conjunction. So instead of being pulled and pushed by every wind of doctrine, rather, instead, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. What's interesting here is that speaking is not actually in the Greek. So the more literal would be, rather, the truth in love. And the idea here is that we would live out the truth in love. That the truth would come through our actions. Now, one of, that act, one of those actions is how we speak, right? But it's not just how we speak. It's how we live out the theology of, of chapters 1 through 3. It's not just about speaking. So next time you talk about speaking the truth in love, that's part of it. But something even bigger is acting out the truth in love. Your actions speak louder than your words, right? Are you acting out God's truth in love? 
Are you living out the theology of chapters 1, 2, and 3? Or do you just speak it out? That's the point that he's driving home. Is that we need to be living out the truth. And not just the truth in some kind of arrogant manner. It's easy for us to become arrogant. We have God's Word. We have the truth. But we need to do it in love. And as we do that, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. So once again, as we live out this truth together as a church, we grow more and more mature in the truths of the theologies of chapters 1, 2, and 3. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So verse 16 is re-emphasizing that we are in unity, but also individuals, and that every individual is important. He gives us two different metaphors here. He gives us a building metaphor and a body metaphor. And in both metaphors, if you are missing pieces, it affects the entire body. There is not a single part of the building and the body that does not affect the rest of it. Every single part of the congregation is important. God has equipped you with unique talents and gifts. He has given us the Word so that we would be deeply rooted into it. He has given us each other so that we could encourage one another in His Word so that when we are obedient to the assignment that He has given us, we would all continue to grow and be fully who God has created us as a church and as individuals to be. Truly, with God's Word, we are better together. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for the body of Christ, this this body that has all of these flaws, and yet You have put us together that we would encourage each other in Your Word. And as we encourage each other in Your Word, we continue to grow and mature in the position that You have put us in. We continue to mature and grow as the masterpieces You have called us to be. And we pray, Lord, that as a church, we would not neglect what we might consider to be lesser assignments, but that we would see them and embrace them and encourage one another in them, that we would all work together building up and maturing Your body for the work that You have called us to. In Your name we pray. Amen.